this morning, we're starting a new sermon series through the letter of 1 Peter. I'm looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed uh, spending time in John's Gospel. And now we move to one of the epistles, the first letter of Peter. Now, to kick the series off, we're going to look at, first of all, who wrote the letter, its author. And then we're going to see who the letter was written to, the recipients. And then we're going to look at why bother with this letter? Why pay attention to this letter? So let's dive in and have a look right at the beginning of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, simple and to the point. No surprises there. Peter is the author. Peter. And who is this Peter? Well, he introduces himself here as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. So anyone who is sent technically can be called an apostle. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't used uh, common for someone to go down to get some milk from the dairy, someone sent. It was used for special people who had a special function. And so Peter was called by Jesus. Jesus called 12 of his followers to be special disciples, to be apostles. Peter was the first called, and whenever the list of 12 is in the Bible, Peter is always first. And because he was so well known by the wider church, any letter with his name would be highly regarded, would carry lots of authority, and would have much gravitas. Now, we know a lot more about Peter than the fact that he was an apostle, as he introduced here. We know that his name was originally Simon, but Jesus renamed him to be called Peter, which means, do we know what Peter means? The rock. That's right, he was named the rock. And Peter got a lot of things right when he was following Jesus, but not everything. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter said, though everyone else fall away, I will follow you. But Jesus, he knew better. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, how many times? Three times you will betray me. And Peter said, never. But we know the story. Not only did he betray Jesus, but he betrayed Jesus three times. And Peter, when the rooster crowed and he had denied Jesus for that third time, he was filled with remorse. However, Jesus would not leave him like this. Jesus would not leave him guilty and full of sadness. And so a short time after, once Christ had risen from the dead, Peter was out fishing in the lake. And there was a man on the shore who called out to Peter and to the others in the boat and said, put your net down on the far side of the boat. And when they did, the net was filled with fish. And Peter straight away thought that person on the lake shore must be Jesus. Do you remember what he did? Yeah, he couldn't wait, could he? He jumped into the water and swam ashore. And there Jesus was preparing a meal. After Peter had warmed himself, and after Peter had had a meal of fish with Jesus, this conversation began. And we see this in John chapter 21, verse 15. Simon. Son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And so Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus then extends, repeats the invitation he made when they first met. In verse 19, he says, Then Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, why do you think Jesus asked Peter three times to feed my sheep? Why, why did he ask that three times? That's right. Because he was denied three times. Isn't there a wonderful symmetry to this healing and to this restoration? So on the night that Jesus was betrayed three times, Peter denied Jesus. And then just a short time later, three times, Peter affirmed his love to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And not only that, right when they first met, Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What happens at the end of that conversation? Jesus says, follow me. Don't we follow a Lord that is so loving and kind and treats us the same way that he treats Peter? We have that invitation at the beginning of the ministry and right here on the lake shore and in between the three denials are balanced with the three confessions of love. And after being restored, renewed, and re-energized, Peter was obedient. And we see this all through the book of Acts. Peter followed Jesus, just like he was called to on the lake shore twice. But he also fed the sheep of Jesus. He taught the followers of Jesus. He nurtured the lambs of Christ. And so this letter, 1 Peter, is one of the ways that Peter was obedient to Jesus. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then a few years later, Peter wrote this letter. He is feeding the sheep. He is feeding us. So this brings us from who wrote the letter to who the letter was written to. Peter the Apostle wrote the letter to who? We see this in the rest of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's written to Christians, to Christ followers, to believers that are scattered through what is now modern-day Turkey. So you can imagine where Turkey is now. That's where those Roman provinces were. However, because the Bible was written not just to the original recipients, but to us as well, 1 Peter is a letter from God to you and I, the church here that gathers at St. Andrew's Mount Monganui, just as much as it was written to those original recipients 2,000 years ago. And notice how he describes us. We are three things. We are elect, we are exiles, and we are scattered. Now, the original recipients weren't scattered and weren't physical exiles. They, in all likelihood, became Christians in the towns and the cities they were, and they stayed here. Now, 
We are also not physical exiles. A lot of us were born in New Zealand and we choose to live here. Some folk have immigrated here, which is awesome, but they've done that because they've chosen to. So technically we're not exiles scattered. Unlike God's people 600 years before this letter was written. And this is what Peter is referring to when he's calling us exiles. He's saying, remember back when the Babylonian nation, the empire, came down and overwhelmed God's people in the nation of Israel and then removed them and took them as exiles to a foreign land. And he is saying, this is what you are. You are exiles in a foreign land. And there's this, there's this wonderful image that Peter is using here to describe us as exiles in a foreign land. In fact, he bookmarks that because if, we haven't got time to now, but if you go right to the end of Peter, he talks about writing from Babylon, from Rome. And he's carrying that, bookending that image of us being exiles and asking us to think back to when God's people were overwhelmed and exiled by the Babylonians. Now this image of being exiles is one of a number of wonderful images that the Bible uses for us when it comes to self-understanding. Now this image of being exiles in a strange land is not the most common image that God uses. Often the image that God uses is to be God as a father and we are his children. That's the most common image that God uses. The second most common image that's used in the Bible is that we are servants to a benevolent king. The third image that the Bible uses most commonly, or is often used, is that we are the body and Jesus is the head. So we are the arms and the feet and the mouth and Jesus is our head. Now each one of those images is very important to help us understand who we are in relation to God and to each other. God is our father and we are his children. Isn't that wonderful? That's kind of the controlling image that we use. The second image that we use is that God is the king, we are his servants. However, the, the image of being exiles in a foreign land is not as common as, as, as the other images. But it is the image that Peter uses. It's the lens that we look for when we do this. So you see, when I read the Gospel of Matthew, the lens I have in the back of my mind is, God is my father, I am his child, how can I please him? When I read the letter of 1 Corinthians, the image I have in the back of my mind is, Jesus is the head, and I am a body part. <laughs> I am an eye, or a mouth, or a hand. How can we serve him better? When I read 1 Peter... What I'm looking at is the lens I use is I am an exile in a foreign land that is hostile to me. How do I stand firm? How do I overcome? And this brings us to why. Why we should worry, why we should bother with the letter to 1 Peter. It's because it's written for those folk who are suffering. For those folk who feel that they are exiles in a foreign land. You see, if God is our Father and we're his children, then that image provides nurture and warmth. Isn't that great? If Jesus is our head and we are hands, then the image there is how do I serve God? 
What's prominent when we read 1 Peter is we are exiles in a foreign land. How do we stand firm in the face of difficulty and discomfort? How do we deal with suffering and how do we deal with hostility when folk from outside the Christian faith push back because we believe Jesus? This is why it's important to study the letter of 1 Peter. And there's some verses here in 1 Peter, some supplementary verses that help us. In verse 6 of chapter 1, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. 1 Peter 2.19 For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. And a couple of verses on, and because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so these are just a sample of some of the verses that Peter uses to help us stand firm in the face of suffering. And not only to stand firm, but to overcome suffering and to do so with joy. Now, one of the images that Peter uses in, the, in his letter is that of a furnace used to refine precious metal. Now, as the metal, as, as we are removed from the flames, Peter sees there are two choices. The first choice is that we come out refined and more precious and more pure. And that's Peter's aim for us. However, some people come out of the flames burnt, charred, a cinder, and good for nothing. And that's what Peter is warning us against. He does not want us to come out of the fires of suffering, of affliction, to be burnt, a cinder, and useful for nothing. Peter is writing this so that when we do suffer and come through, we are refined and more precious. And in all this, joy is very important here. Because Peter not only teaches us how to endure suffering and to overcome it, but to overcome it with joy. And that's why I've called this series Standing Firm, Finding Joy. Because that's the lens that we'll be looking, for, looking at as we go right through this letter. Standing Firm, Finding Joy, verse 6 of chapter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. So right at the beginning in verse 6, Peter is saying, I know that you are suffering all kinds of trials. Let me show you how to get through, to stand firm, to overcome and do so with joy. So let me ask you a question. How are you dealing with suffering? Some of you are going through tough times now. Are you standing firm in your faith? Some of us, all of us, have been through tough times in the past. Are we marked with joy? Did that make us a more joyful person going through those sufferings? Or are we bitter and twisted and angry at God? All of us will face suffering in the future. None of us is immune. Are you ready to stand firm, overcome, and to do some with joy? I mean, is this even possible? Let me finish with an example of a couple who faced a tragedy after tra tragedy and overcame. And Horatio Spafford 
was a 43-year-old lawyer who lived in Chicago with his wife, Anna. They had five lovely children. Then in 1871, their only son died. A few months later, the Chicago fire consumed Spafford real estate investments. He lost his entire life savings. Fortunately, the family was spared. Two years later, after a bit of uh, rebuild, Spafford and his family decided to holiday in Europe. However, Spafford was delayed by last-minute business, so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead, as scheduled, and he promised he would follow in a ship a couple of days later. However, on that voyage, the ship that was carrying his family was struck by an iron sailing vessel, and their vessel sunk within 12 minutes. Over 200 people were killed. When the survivors eventually landed in Europe, Anna survived, cabled her husband. Saved alone, what shall I do? I don't know if you can see in the text there, but that's the original handwritten form that Anna wrote. And you might be able to see, can we have the next slide? You might be able to see underlined in red. She has written those words, saved alone, what shall I do? Imagine being the father who got that telegram. He'd heard that the ship had sunk and had been praying for a few weeks that his family would be saved, and then he got a telegram. Saved alone, what shall I do? Well, Spafford immediately left Chicago, got on a ship, the first ship he could, to sail to Europe to bring his wife home. And in the midst of his sorrow, while sailing near the place of his daughter's death, Spafford wrote the words of this hymn, the hymn, It is well with my soul. Let me read to you. So he's sailing across the sea, approximately the place where his daughter's drowned, and he writes this hymn including these words, this verse here, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. And then that wonderful chorus, It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, many couples would be absolutely devastated by that, and they grieved, and we can only imagine their grief. But you know what they did? They then decided that they would, they, they would follow God's call. They moved to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the people there. And while Jerusalem, the Spaffords were able to share Jesus with the local Jewish and Muslim communities. What an amazing testimony. Standing firm. And finding joy. Wow, what a testimony. I mean, is it even possible? Is it possible to stand firm and find joy no matter how tragic our life has become or what sorrows we are enduring? Yes, it is. And that's what 1 Peter is there to help us do, to stand firm and to find joy. So what have we looked at today? Well, in this introduction to 1 Peter, we've seen that Peter wrote this letter out of faithful obedience. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And when we look at 1 Peter, we are sheep being fed. 
Second thing we looked at was who was the letter written to. Well, it was written not only to those original recipients in Turkey, but it was written to you and I. It is written to everyone who suffers. Four, this world is not our home. <laughs> we are exiles in a hostile land. And that means just by being human and in the world, that suffering will come. It may come through health or relationship breakdown or financial resources. We will suffer, and one Peter will help us. But we also suffer because we stand up for Jesus in a world that is hostile to him. And there are times when then there is pushback, and one Peter was written for us so that we could stand firm while finding joy. And this was why we bother with the letter. This is why 1 Peter is so important, so relevant to us. It's because, just as the Spaffords did, hopefully not to that degree, but we will face suffering in this world. But as long as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will stand firm and find joy. Let's pray.